Have a seat. <clears throat> we just sang this hymn, which is more of a paraphrase in some ways of Psalm 87, John Newton. And by what justification did you sing a song about Old Testament Zion in Jerusalem and sing it about the church? Our hymn books are full of these kinds of hymns and um, not to mention the fact that Presbyterians used to be kind of famous for singing psalms until scripture songs replaced them. I tweeted this afternoon, the real hill songs are the psalms of Zion um, <laughs> in the canon. But <clears throat> um, that's the question I want to touch on today and to do it for our edification. Uh, Pentecost, just over two weeks ago, I saw a Presbyterian minister, not our brand of Presbyterian minister, but nevertheless say, today we celebrate the birth of the church. And we can understand in a certain sense what that means. The gift of the Spirit in its fullness and permanence, not that the Spirit was lacking in the Old Testament. In fact, if we read carefully and, and uh, we see that the Spirit and the glory cloud are so closely associated that we can regard them largely as one and the same in the Old Testament. We see that what happened at Pentecost was much similar to what happened at Mount Sinai with the glory cloud descending upon the people of God as they walked through the wilderness. Um, but if we mark the birth of the church at Pentecost, we do what I as a husband have done on a few occasions. We've missed a few birthdays. <laughs> Between several hundred or a few thousand, depending how we count. So that's the question we want to touch on today. I'm not going to read my article. Uh, for those of you who have paid for the WSJ, not the Wall Street Journal, your uh, <clears throat> investment won't be uh, in vain because I'm not going to read it, although it has the data points of much of what I'll talk about today. So today I want to talk about why we can talk about this subject and also do some application because I know for uh, th those of us who come to General Assembly teaching elder and ruling it or like, we like to try to apply what we're learning and knowing. Um, <clears throat> Thomas Oden, um, I believe the late Thomas Oden now, who was once uh, thoroughly uh, immersed in higher critical scholarship, uh, who, but who turned and became an evangelical. I heard him one time say, uh, and it was a little bit scandalous because it was a largely Baptist crowd, he said, of higher criticism, it's, it's not only an evolutionary dead end, that is, when you've taken the Bible into pieces, you, there's not much to do with it. But he said, it doesn't even arouse us. And he actually used a different word for arouse. And naturally, the Baptists among us were somewhat scandalized. But Bob Hosack, is Bob still an elder at Emmanuel? Bob was sitting there, and we turned and looked at each other, and we said, he did say that, didn't he? His point being that there are lots of scholarship that has no, not only purpose beyond itself, but it does nothing to stir the passions. Well, I feel the same way about this subject. We could cover the church in the Old Testament and be done with it as a conclusion, but I want to do more than that because you are here as a servant of the church and <clears throat> you uh may need some help at times to love the church more. And so when 
we come together to talk about the subject of the church in the Old Testament, um, while my immediate goal is to connect some of the dots to see the roots of the church in the Old Testament, my ultimate goal for you all and for me is love, love for God's church. Uh, now, there may have been some of you who woke up this morning who said, I want to study my, I want to understand my Bible better today. I want to understand historical theology better today. I want to delve into the history of the church more deeply today. And bless you, Aaron uh, and Brandon. Uh, even seminary professors pray those kinds of things. Um, but it's more likely that some of you woke up this morning praying, I wish I still love my church, or why is it so hard to love the church? Or, I don't love the church and I wish I could find another job. Well, um, what is it that incites love in a lover? It is the loveliness of the beloved, isn't it? And that's what um, Newton will sing a Timothy Dwight him as we conclude the day. This is what the psalmist in uh, writing Psalm 48, Psalm 87, Psalm 86, uh, even as he mourned, writing Psalm 137, it was the loveliness of Zion and the loveliness of Jerusalem and the memories of all that God had done for his people and how God was in the midst of her and he wouldn't be moved. Those were the things um, the marks of beauty that are accessible to us as we begin to see the church in the Old Testament. So um, it's not an intrinsic beauty, is it? It's not that the church walks down the street and everybody says, wow. It's more like, oh, sometimes. It's an imputed beauty. It's a beauty, it's an alien beauty. It is a beauty of her lover. Notice in Psalm 45, which, by the way, is the RTS Orlando official psalm. I got to help choose it. It's one of those nerdy seminary things that people do. But it's the beauty of the princess as well as the beauty of the king that is the subject of that psalm that makes the psalmist tongue the pen of a ready writer. So that's, that's the promise that I'm offering you uh, in this short time we have. It's not an esoteric glamour shots beauty. Uh, but nevertheless, Paul wrote Ephesians 5 to a local church when he talked about the bride in all her glory, having no spot or blemish or any such thing because of the washing of regeneration and the word accomplished through the bridegroom giving of himself for her. Christ did not die for an invisible church. And Paul wrote to visible churches, to, lo to local churches. Churches just like the ones um, you serve as elders and pastors. So we want to, in this short time, put on display the beauty of the church in the Old Testament so that, number one, we'll love the church more. Number two, we'll be more in awe of God because He is the one who has given her that beauty and three, so that we will enhance and expose more of the church's beauty to the people we serve so that we can more faithfully lead our churches in fulfilling its mission because the mission of the church begins on the first page of the Bible.
the church as a sign, a foretaste, and the instrument of God bringing his kingdom to earth the way it is in the heavens. So as far as our method, <clears throat> I'm not going to duplicate, as I said, what's in the article. I will read a few sections. But I want us to um, look at some of the examples of uh, what the New Testament writers saw as the church in the Old Testament and take their lead and move toward it. Passages like 1 Peter chapter 2, you're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for God's own uh, possession. Or Hebrews 12 verse 22, you have come to Zion, to the city of the living God, to the general assembly which is in heaven. He didn't say presbytery which is in heaven, but I think that would be appropriate too. Um, to do that, I also want to give a couple of qualifiers. Uh, I, I've, I've sort of taken pride over the years when a student has asked me, well, what's new about the New Covenant then? Because I think I'm getting through when somebody asks me that question. Um, but I, I don't want to underemphasize what happened when Jesus was born and lived and died. I don't want to underemphasize that. That's not a yada yada line. <clears throat> but I am using the analogy in the article that if we only start looking at the church from the New Testament, it's like walking into the middle of a, of a play or a movie. How many, how many of you saw Titanic more than three times? No, gosh. Five? No? Okay. At least not anybody admit it. My brother got that t-shirt that said, the boat sunk. Get over it. <laughs> There's a difference, right? Between seeing the movie and hearing the ending. And if we enter the drama of redemption only at the time of the coming of the kingdom and its inauguration to Jesus, we're just coming into the middle of the story. And part of the reason God gives us the story of redemptive history is that so our, our awe and our love would increase. Uh, so uh, it's important for, to accomplish the goals I mentioned for us to, to go back to see the church and its development in the Old Testament. Because if we don't do that, then we will deprive God of that glory that those millennia of his providential leading and guiding the events of history toward his end, the fullness of time when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of the law. We deprive God of the glory that he rightly accrues for those millennia of his working in history under the, the promise. So um, with those uh, preliminaries, um, Let's look at some of the examples of how we can see the church in the Old Testament. Uh, and as a core, um, every time I say we're done with preliminaries, we have another preliminary. But <clears throat> this is the big preliminary, which is understand the, the principle of the gospel in the Old Testament. And this, this is where it was my, my pleasure to connect with the theme of the journal, which is the confession um, and to show you what I'm, I'm saying here is grounded in the teaching of the Westminster Confession. Uh, 
Appreciate so much Zach and Scott's presentations. Um, <clears throat> I've been in the EPC since 1981 and uh, seen a lot of its history. Um, I didn't say anything uh, at the beginning I, about what I do. I, I've, I, I taught Old Testament for 20 years, New Testament for 10 years, practical theology for 25 years. That's not all consecutive. <laughs> and um, at, Ar at Reform Seminary Orlando, I, um, so I have a broad range of incompetence. <laughs> and uh, I took a break from that teaching to serve the General Assembly office for, for six years. Um, and I've, uh, I've watched this denominational conversation about the relationship of the essentials and the confession. And um, I think one thing is very helpful to, to understand this sort of a caveat to, to the main thing I'm talking about is I've heard many times the Westminster Confession being put over against the scriptures. And even sometimes you hear the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed done that way. Um, that's um, a really anachronistic way to look at the Westminster Standards. The Westminster Standards are what the church believed the Bible said when they thoughtfully and studiously composed them. And because we are connected to that church, it's part of our history of what the Bible says. Carl Truman, what's the name of Carl's book? The Creedal Imperative. That's a really good little book on this subject. Um, we can say the creeds and the confessions are wrong about what they say the Bible says, but we should never say the creeds and confessions say something other than or apart from the Bible speaking. They are trying, just as we are in our Sunday sermons, our Sunday school classes, or whatever, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're articulating what we think the Bible says. And so um, here, I think, you see some of the genius of Westminster coming out. Um, Westminster is brilliant in how it doesn't resolve certain questions. And chapter 3 is one of the best places to go when it talks about God's eternal degrees, decrees. God um, has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass. Okay, there's your Calvinistic fatalism, right? Um, ordaining the means as well as the ends. Oh, you mean God uses other actors. God works immutably and contingently. What? You mean he does things without considering doing them differently and he does them contingently based on how creatures respond to what he's doing in history? And he, he works according to? apart from and even contrary to second causes so that if I drop my phone it will fall to the floor and crack and maybe it won't but it probably will <laughs> but the axe head did float and the mule talked as E.V. Hill once said to this General Assembly in 1983 and so you can see the the last thing that chapter 3 of the confession teaches is some kind of fatalistic view of God's sovereignty it's brilliant in its biblical theological nuances and so it must be appreciated for that. And if you were taught in seminary that um, creeds and confessions messed up the Bible or messed up Calvinism, you had to be taught that because it doesn't bear out in the facts. And so I would recognize, I recommend uh, the works of Richard Muller. Who else should I 
recommend well, Truman's little book himself to understand that the line we stand in is a faithful heir to not only the writings and the teachings of Calvin, but of Augustine, and, and, and it's a Catholic faith that we believe. Thank you, Zach, for your earlier exposition of that. That's a little, just a little uh, um, uh, side road uh, to just add my amen to what's already been said. Um, so here are a few provisions of the Westminster Confession that justify the, the search for the Old Test, the church in the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, first of all, <clears throat> the gospel being preached beforehand. This is phraseology from Galatians 3 and 1 Peter 1 and Romans 10. I'm not going to read the chapters, although I will admit, as Aaron Beatty busted me already, I have the Bible of shame. I've got the Gideon's Bible because <laughs> I forgot my Bible. <laughs> but, um, but you can look these passages up as well. Um, these are verses that talk about the gospel being preached beforehand, before the time of Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection, the gospel was preached. And the confession actually says in <clears throat> chapter 19, verse 3, in an article on the church, because this law, speaking of the, the, the law of God, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age. And that expression is pregnant, isn't it? That is, it's a church before the fullness of time. It's a, it's a, um, to use a, a, an image that Gerhardus of Voss, the old Princetonian used, you know, the acorn and the, and the oak tree. Uh, <clears throat> if we were to stand there long enough, we would not be surprised to see the shoot come up. And there would be a time where it would be an oak tree where it had not been one before, but it still would have been genetically the same thing. And so uh, the confession describes Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, even under the ceremonial laws and the types, uh, as a church under age. Uh, so uh, we're justified, according to that hermeneutical principle, to read the history of Israel as a reflection of the church. Um, point C, the gospel was actually administered in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> 7.5 says this covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law. And this is, of course, uh, something of an emphasis, if not a distinctive re 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 of Reformed theology, that the covenant of grace was administered before the new covenant. And the covenant of grace was administered in the time of the law. Dr. Red mentioned Dabney's statement. Uh, I've uh, contributed a chapter on dispensationalism to a book on covenant theology that uh, RTS will be publishing probably a year from this fall. Um, my chapter on dispensationalism, I, I, I mentioned uh, the statement of Schofield in the first Schofield Study Bible that said, Israel rashly accepted God's offer at Mount Sinai. That when God um, uh, gave them the law from Sinai and Israel said, all you've spoken we will do, they just made the biggest uh, mistake since... Uh, you know, since Nixon went on TV with John Kennedy or something, I don't know. Um, but that's not, as we'll see from some scripture passages, uh, the, the teaching of, 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 the, of the scriptures. And it says 
that, uh, which for that time were sufficient and efficacious. So how was somebody justified in the Old Testament? By grace, through faith. Based on Christ alone, who was yet to come, but through the sacrifices and the ordinances and the types, uh, that grace was administered by God. Um, and of course, we see Hebrews 11 doesn't hesitate to list a whole, whole hall of fame of, of such people. And it concludes, there are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one of the same under various dispensations. Dispensations not meaning what dispensationalists mean by dispensation, but uh, I, I address that in the chapter if you, if you remember long enough and you want to look at that. Uh, others have written well about that as well. <clears throat> and then lastly, uh, Confession 8.6, although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world. Abel was justified by faith. And Eve was justified by faith. When she names... Um, I'm, I'm sorry, Adam, I don't doubt that Eve was as well, but when Adam heard God's promise and named his wife mother of the living, he believed the Lord. And that's the basis for being declared right before God. And he even put a little sharper point on it. 1 Corinthians 10, 4, Moses, um, uh, Paul is describing Moses and Israel in the wilderness um, they all drank from the same rock and they all ate the same bread and, uh, and Edmund Clowney so wonderfully talks about this in many places and one is his book The Unfolding Mystery but Paul says and that rock was Christ and, and this, this will conclude this section here hear me on this the rock wasn't like Christ and we don't mean to say that the rock was the, the incarnation before the incarnation. But what, what Paul is saying there is that the benefits of Christ were administered to those in Israel who drank by faith. Because you always have to drink and eat with two mouths, right? You come to the Lord's Supper, you eat and drink with two mouths. The mouth you eat with, but the mouth of faith. Grace is always conditional <laughs> upon faith. There's nothing antithetical to grace and conditionality as long as it's not a conditionality of merit. But all those who drank from that rock by, by faith, seeing it as the Lord's provision, shared in what Christ would do 18, 15 centuries later. And so, while we might naturally preach the Old Testament as analogies or illustrations of what God has done in Christ, we need to be a little more bold and say God was administering the substance of his saving work through those things. So when Israel stood outside the tent on the Day of Atonement and they heard the word that the atonement had been made, those who looked to Leviticus 16 and 17 in faith were forgiven their sins. So how, this is the basis on which we can go about reading the Old Testament with a view to finding the church. And I'll survey these because um, they're in the article. 
and in a couple of years, when you can't buy the journal anymore, I'll send it to you free. Is that? Okay. <clears throat> um, first of all, the ecclesia. Now, ecclesia is the Greek word that is translated church in the New Testament. Um, here's a side note. Um, etymologies rarely, if ever, tell us what words mean. And so the church are not the called out ones. And um, my, my, uh, one of my professors, Moses Silva, uh, in, in one of his books says, there's usually a, an inverse correlation between how much Greek and Hebrew you hear from the pulpit and how much the preacher knows. <laughs> and uh, this would be an... <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry, teaching elders. <laughs> Now you, what, where's your cachet going to come from now? Where's your, um, if they can find this stuff out on their own, they might not keep paying you anyway. Um, so um, the ecclesia in the Greco-Roman society is um, is a word that describes a public assembly, usually summoned for some doing some business. Like we think of the town hall meetings of, of, a, of a bygone day, or you think of the, um, how do they do the elections in New Hampshire and Iowa, the caucuses, uh, something like that. Um, and as a matter of fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, the Greek word ekklesia most frequently translates a, a, a Hebrew word that means assembly. And you see this particularly in the book of Deuteronomy where Israel was gathered to God at Mount Horeb to hear the voice of God speak, to do the will of God, to worship Him. You also find it in 1 Kings 8 and in a lot of the Psalms uh, where Israel worshiped God at Mount Zion. And so the ecclesia, without being too simplistic about it, the ecclesia of the New Testament is simply the continuation of the kahal or the assembly of the Old Testament. In other words, the ecclesia is not a mystery that was hidden and unknown until the Jews rejected Jesus and surprise, the church age began, which is a classic dispensational view. Appreciate what you said about replacement theology. Uh, Replacement theology is a pejorative term used to describe the views of people like us. Um, I, I like to think of it this way. When God said, Abraham, look at the stars and count the sand, that if fast forward, Abraham is raised from the dead today and he looks out, he would say, I'm not surprised because that was the promise, wasn't it? That God would only not only bless Abraham and his descendants after him, but through him, what? He blessed the nations. And so you have these, these Jewish followers of Jesus who are the marginalia, right? The religious authorities have too much stake because they put a lot of sweat equity into the vineyard. And they're tired of paying rent. Actually, they never paid rent. And, and the owner of the vineyard sends representative after representative. They get treated progressively harsher. And then they see the sun coming. And what do they say to themselves? This is the sun. 
this is his inheritance. If we kill him, we'll go from being sharecroppers to being owners. That's, that's sort of the deadly trajectory of ministry, isn't it? Going from stewardship to ownership. Israel never owned the land. Leviticus, Leviticus in his later chapter said, said that the, the, the land is mine. Israel lived there as sojourners, as strangers, but with, with a promise. Covenant sojourners. <laughs> and um, because how they were to treat the stranger among them was part of the conditions for them remaining in the land, right? So uh, the, what happened is not surprising that the majority, the, especially those who were stakeholders, rejected Jesus. And Jesus said that this vineyard is going to be taken away from them and be given to other stewards who are going to produce the fruit. And so the, the disciples and, and the women and uh, people like Nicodemus and, and then the motley crew begins to grow and by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts, it becomes... The, uh, the, it, it's like you charter EPC members. Does it bother you that there's so many people here now that joined after you? It shouldn't, right? Because it's a sign of God's favor. It's a sign of God keeping his promises. And so you can read more about that in the dispensational chapter. Uh, thankfully, there have been many adjustments to dispensationalism that have lessened some of these uh, issues. But to go on from Ecclesia, we have this complex of ideas, the city of God, Jerusalem, Mount Zion. They're all kind of bound up together at different times. Hebrews 12, I mentioned earlier. And we have to appreciate the context of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 11 is the Faith Hall of Fame, right? And, and prior to that, the writer of Hebrews says all these things that were from before, Jesus is better than. Hebrews 11 tells us all these died in faith. Amen. Without receiving the promise. Huh? They, all these died in faith, they, but they welcomed them what? From a distance. But chapter 12 says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the myriad of angels, to the church of the firstborn, to the righteous made perfect, and the general assembly which is in heaven. So what happened between chapter 11 and 12.22? Well, Jesus entered in. True Israel made it to the promised land, ascending to the right hand of God, declared righteous, vindicated, everything else that goes with it. I love Richard Gaffin uh, makes a little comment in a Bible, a Bible dictionary. Uh, uh, Jesus is the self-same kingdom, or autobasileia is a word you Greek scholars might recognize that neologism. Jesus was the embodiment of the kingdom of God in himself. If no one had ever believed in Jesus, the kingdom of God would have existed in the Son. That's why when we share in the fullness of the Son by union with Christ, we share in the kingdom of God, right? But only through that. Um, so Christ entered in. The true Israel has crossed the wilderness and entered the promised land. And by faith in him, we now have come to the city of God. How many of you have a, an architect's rendering of a building project in your church lobby? 
do you keep the dust off of it? You know, do you dust it down once in a while? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, some of them get pretty decrepit, you know, after a while. And, and, and we think of the New Testament fulfillments as spiritual, and they are, but we really should think of them as spiritual with a capital S, not spiritual as opposed to material, but spiritual as what Dr. Red is referring to, the, the, the eschatological fulfillment. So Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, the temple, the tabernacle, all these things, they're not the realities of which we now only have spiritual concepts. But those are the architect's renderings. I mean, on Mount Sinai in Exodus 25, verse 8, God tells Moses to make the tabernacle according to the pattern which I show you. God didn't show him a blueprint. God showed him the courts of heaven. God reigning on the throne, surrounded by holy angels. And, and all the prophets get introduced into this, into this place before they're commissioned to come and speak the word of God. But um, there are, I've listed a variety of psalms that celebrate Zion, um, that, um, uh, that, that sing its praises. Uh, I would be remiss... <clears throat> We would be remiss not to include Psalm 137, where the psalmist sings from exile. Um, there in Babylon we sat down, we hung up our harps. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? Well, the good news is this, that Zion has come to us. And so even while we long for the eschatological fulfillment, for when we see heaven on earth, we also, as we sung already, I through grace a member am already. And so when we sing the Psalms of Ascent, we're singing about going up to a place where we already are because of what theologians call the already and the not yet. Um, there are the titles of 1 Peter 2 that come right out of Exodus 19. Uh, Peter doesn't hesitate. Peter is speaking to a situation, I think, the most closely, most, the closest to our situation. Uh, aliens in exile. Uh, we're citizens of a better city, a better country, but we live scattered among the nations. And so that represents certain difficulties and hardships and it causes us to doubt and to flag in our faith and so forth. First Peter is great for living in a pluralistic world. And uh, Leslie Newbegin has written about this in a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. I commend it. But what does he do to encourage the resident aliens who are followers of Christ? He draws on the inventory of Exodus 19, what God said to Israel a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, God's own special treasure. And there I think we find the mission of the church perhaps in its most poignant form in the whole New Testament. Uh, to, we are to declare the praises of him who has brought us out of darkness just like the dark night of the Passover out of darkness into his marvelous light just like the glorious light at the foot of Mount Sinai. And yet we have a better mediator. We have his finished work. But, never, but, but, but Peter doesn't hesitate. 
for people living in a pluralistic world, uh, and, and he and he and um, um, in particular, and the writer of Hebrews as well, and that's in the next point, they don't hesitate to go to the book of Numbers and the book of Leviticus to tell us how to persevere in faith. Because there were many who crossed through the wilderness, but not all persevered in faith. The uh, descendants of Abraham and Sarah, that's already been mentioned. Um, there's the whole temple tabernacle complex of ideas. Somebody asked a question earlier to try to fit that out more. Uh, here's the way I, I like to think of it. In the Garden of Eden, there, everything was very good. But God said to Adam and Eve, go fill the earth and subdue it. So even in the Garden of Eden, you have an already and a not yet. I forget whether it's Meredith Klein or Gerhardus Voss, one or the other said, eschatology precedes soteriology. Voss? Well, they're, they're related. Eschatology precedes what it means is this, before there was sin in the world, before there was a need for forgiveness and atonement even, God had a higher end in view. And so covenant theology teaches that the covenant of grace fulfills the original purpose of the covenant in creation. But, I need to point out uh, under um, point two here, what is even a more specific point, what was, what, what's the world's oldest profession? Gardening. Farming, gardening, yeah. Why? Why did you think? Somebody else? <laughs> my father-in-law <clears throat> father works about 500 acres at 86 years old, uh, just west, east of St. Louis there, but it's not farming. Uh, the two verbs, Adam was told to tend and keep the garden. These are the same two verbs that are instructions to the Levites to guard and serve, as in worship service, to guard and serve the tabernacle. To guard from unholy invasion and also to serve, to serve the one who dwelt there and also to serve those uh, for whom the Levites mediated God's presence. What does that mean? God, Adam was a priest. He's not only a priest, he's a son of God, which is a royal title. He's a royal priest. So the, the office of the priesthood of all believers begins in Genesis 1. Genesis 2. Give me, give me a little fudge there. And so when we think about what it is to be a missional church, and I, I use that language. Joey and I had a nice conversation about that at lunch. There's a lot of bad usage of that word, but I think it's, it's a word worth redeeming. Uh, if you want to talk about being missional, you have to go back even before the fall. And it's there we find God's creational purposes. The world is, God created a good world. As Calvin enjoyed it, the, God's good gift of his creation. Some of you will be enjoying his good gifts uh, after the worship service tonight. Uh, sorry. Uh, we're not GC enough yet, you know. That's gospel coalition enough. Um, so the church's mission is to fulfill the creation mission as that kingdom of priests, holy nation. And then G, 
very briefly, uh, my, for, my old mentor and colleague, Bruce Waltke, who was birthed and nursed at Dallas Seminary and taught there for many years, uh, but had a, something of a, of a change of direction. Um, he, he, uh, he notes that what the Old Testament refers to as the land for Abraham is treated, I think it's Romans 4, is it? Romans 4, the cosmos. Meaning, Israel looked at a land, but as on redemptive history unfolds, God's way more ambitious than that. God is after a creation that is full of the glory of God, that, that fills it like the waters cover the sea. And whenever the new the, and, and 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 Bruce Walkey notes that the land, the New Testament never even mentions land. But it talks about inheritance over and over and over, which is the word for land in Deuteronomy, especially. Are we going to get land? We're going to get a whole world, but we're going to get something more. Who, what is the inheritance of the saints? God. God is our dwelling place for all generations. Edmund Clowney's little article mentioned here in the... In the um, suggestions for further reading and I realize this is not probably something everybody's on the same page about in a denomination like the EPC but Dr. Clown he says look the, the final temple has been raised and we shouldn't want to send anybody back to second class status to worship in a stone temple the woman at the, the, woman at the well and, and the Samaritan woman it wasn't just worshiping in sincerity and truth that she was promised. It's capital S spirit that the temple on Gerizim, the temple on Jerusalem, and every other high place would be torn down. But, because the, but the spirit as our dwelling place, the spirit as that in which we dwell so that we worship together, united to our living head Christ, right? Because the Holy Spirit has another name, true. What is it? The Spirit of Christ, Dr. Red taught us that. And so um, that doesn't mean God is done with uh, Jews according to the flesh. Uh, there's room for some um, um, under, farther understanding there. But, um, but we have um, a down payment on our inheritance already which is God, the Spirit. <laughs> it's like getting the best as a down payment rather than a token. So I'll uh, leave you to consider the others, and I'll be open to questions. You can uh, reach me at my email address at the seminary. I do want to say a couple of closing things. Um, so what? Well, uh, hopefully seeing the story of God's working with his people in the Old Testament as things in which we now stand in direct succession helps us to see the glory of God more greatly. Uh, we see more what God has done to preserve a remnant by his purchase of humanity. We see, as Dr. Red alluded to, 
a cure for hyper-individualism. If you're united to Christ, guess what? You get your crazy uncle. <laughs> there, there, there is no body part apart from the body. Except in TV mystery dramas. <laughs> and uh, I think, I'm hopeful that we're coming to an end of people believing you can be a Christian in good standing without being a part of Christ's body. It's just, when you, eat, when you eat the table, when you eat and drink at the table, you're not just saying you're one with Christ, but you're saying you're one with His people. So, anyway, um, thankfully the clock is out and we, I'm not further tempted on that. Um, <clears throat> They worshipped at Notre Dame, I guess, Saturday for the first time since the fire. But um, there's actually a church in, in uh, Europe that is more impressive than Notre Dame. Some of you have maybe been there. Sagrada Familia. Anybody ever seen it? 60 Minutes did a wonderful piece on it. Uh, replayed it a couple of times. It looks like trees and forests and things. Uh, is a little wiki article. I'm just looking up the name of the architect, Anthony Gaudi. Uh, he died in 26, and um, they're hoping, I think it's in 2020, they're hoping, or 2026, they're projecting to have finished all of his plans. His son is now the master architect. And somebody asked him, I th it might have been a 60 Minutes interview, um, does it bother you that it's taken so long? And he said, I serve a very patient client. <laughs> and so having a panorama of the church in the Old and New Testament really helps us gra grasp that, don't, doesn't it? John the Baptist was asked if he was jealous about the crowds going after Jesus. What did he say? The friend of the bridegroom rejoices to see the bride and the broom together. There's no greater title in the kingdom of God, I don't think, than to be a friend of the bride. And that means, especially for you younger guys, there's a real difference between a ministry and a career. And uh, you know what I'm talking about. A career involves a desire to be noticed, the desire to be acknowledged, um, to live quorum homo rather than quorum deo, that is, to live before men rather than before God, to not do the secret closet prayer where, as Eric Alexander said to us many years ago, prayer being the work of the ministry. Um, and it is costly and it is sometimes a grief. But Jesus made a promise that though whoever sought to keep his life would lose it, but whoever would take up his cross, follow Jesus, that is, lose his life, would save it. And so we have this unfortunate 
instruction that the only path to life is through death and the only path to crown is through cross. And ministry is a constant negotiation of picking up cross and then we like Peter in the garden, we look down and there's a sword back in it. And it's the sword of politics, it's the sword of objectifiable metrical results, it's the sword of uh, raw power and the currency of the world when it comes to power and authority. But we have a promise from Jesus that if we accept his baptism, we will also be united to him in his resurrection life. And that applies to ministry all the more. So what am I saying? Do the work. Repent daily for wanting to have a career. Be a lamb before you're a shepherd. Turn the other cheek. Sound like Garrison Keillor here. Be hopeful. We're going to be like Ezra's multitude a lot of the time. Our shouts of joy will be mingled with shouts of weeping. But Jesus has promised he will build his church. And he has made his stewards of his cupboard with the keys to life to open and close. And so be encouraged. This is hard work, but it's good work. Eventually. <laughs> eventually. And now. And ask some older people to tell you some stories. 